The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. And we are in our continuing study of the Ten Commandments, and now we're on the Eighth Commandment, which says in verse number 15, Thou shalt not steal. We are in the second table of the law that has as its underlying principle this commandment of Jesus, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I remind you once again that Jesus is the author of all of the Bible's laws, And he summarized the second table of the law in Matthew chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, when he said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Each of those commandments is connected to the first table of the law, in which we're told that, We are to love God supremely, and when we love God above all, the outworking of our love for Him will be our love for each other. We show God that we love Him by obeying His command to love others. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love requires the demonstration of action. It's not just something that you say. Love is something that you do. And we show that we love God by doing His works. And this is one of His chief works, that is God treats people, so we are also to treat our fellow man. Now, as we look at the commandments, if we were to admit to a ranking of commandments in these last, uh, last ones in the second table of the law, then we would look at the first three of the second table. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill, do not commit adultery. We would probably look at those as the most important. To break those commandments is actually to interfere with a person's life in his relationship with God or to just interfere with a person's life. If you look at commandments 1 through 7, starting at the top, going all the way down to number 7, you'll find that with each of them, there was a penalty of death that was attached to any one of them. You break one of those and the penalty is death. Now certainly we could see that in the first four because in those first four we find breaking those would be blasphemy against God. And what God would never allow in Israel is for a blasphemer to live. And then beginning in the second table, uh, I hope that you remember that where it says honor thy father and thy mother, the penalty for that, God says that if you have a rebellious son... He is to be put to death. Then next came the sanctity of life, thou shalt not kill. So if you take another person's life unlawfully, that is a murderous crime. And so there is no murderer who is permitted to live. The next commandment is adultery. Adultery is one of the most serious offenses because adultery destroys the covenant of fidelity. It ruins God's picture of faithfulness to his people. And for that reason, adulterers, adulteresses were sentenced to death. In the New Testament, the Jews stood around an adulterous woman and they were ready to stone her to death. And so those first seven commands show us how important that worship and life are to God. 
But now we come to the last three commandments, and the penalty lowers for breaking these because God does not demand death for breaking these commandments. However, we ought not to think that these aren't very serious also. It's serious business. You can mark down that hell is going to be hotter for breaking the first seven, but I'll tell you that hell is always hot for breaking the last three. Hell has no end to it. There's no relief from hell for breaking any of God's commandments. Another interesting note about the Eighth Commandment is the frequency of its violation. With, with the possible exception of cursing and anger and how we always put ourselves above God, this is probably the commandment in which we're most active. Now, you may not realize that at first. You may think this is the one that you stay away from. You don't steal. We'll see over the next few weeks how that's not true. There are many other ways that this command is broken and all of us are guilty. And so this is why I speak of this commandment today uh, in a group of people in a congregation that for the most part we think we're doing pretty well. We, we don't steal from anybody. About three years ago we did an evangelism series using the Way of the Master video as a guide and I remember watching that method of witnessing and how their approach was always to take people to God's law first before they would take them to God's grace. I believe that that approach is right, that people need to be shown that they are sinners. And since all have sinned, it's not really that hard to prove that people are sinners. There were four questions usually asked uh, from the Ten Commandments to prove that we're all guilty. First, they would ask the question, have you ever taken God's name and used it as a curse word? And of course, that would be the tie that you have broken the first table of the law. Question number two is, have you ever looked at another person with lust? And of course, that brings in the command of adultery. Question number three, have you ever told a lie? That's commandment number nine. And then question number four, have you ever stolen anything? And I always looked at that last question as not being very good because surely there would be plenty of people who would say, well, no, I've never stolen anything. But when you watch those, you find out that the answer is always yes. And I thought about how I would answer that question. And at first I thought that I would say, well, no, I've never done that. And Ray Comfort, who is the leader in those videos, he would always ask, are you an honest person? And amazingly, people would always say yes, to which he would ask, well, have you ever stolen anything? And then they would say yes. So the obvious conclusion to him and to them would be, well, you're not a very honest person then, are you? You have stolen something. Now, that, that is such a, uh, such a hard question and an embarrassing question, embarrassingly offensive, that I didn't see sometimes how he kept from getting a fist in the face when he would say that. But the logic is sound. If you've done this, if you've lied, if you've stolen, then you're not an honest person. We don't want to admit it, but we're not really as good as we think that we are. We're sinners. And so if we very carefully read God's Word, it points that out to us over and over again. The Bible proves itself to be right when it says, All have sinned. And it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no way that we can go to the law of God and prove ourselves to be innocent of breaking God's law. Now let me go back to this again. We're proven to be dishonest, but we don't really believe that. So if I were to come up to you and just randomly approach you and say, are you an honest person? 
you would probably say yes. You'd be very upset if I said, no, you're not only dishonest, but I've just caught you in a lie, and that proves that you're doubly dishonest. Now that prompts the title of the message today, The Theology of Theft. Now as I see it, when I say theology, I, I mean the way that God looks at this thing. How does God see you? And I was surprised when I started studying this that the Eighth Commandment has its own theology. It's more expansive than what you might think. You see those few words, do not, thou shalt not steal, do not steal. Really, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of theology behind it. Returning to what Jesus said in Matthew 19, he spoke the 18th and the 19th verses into a, in a response to a young man who was convinced that he was doing well, that he was obeying all of the commandments. Jesus gave him some representative commands that he knew the young man was sure to say that he had kept. And interestingly, there are three of them that are the same ones that Ray Comfort uses in his presentation. And I don't need to tell you who thought of using the commandments first. Jesus said, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And those statements expose every one of us in this room when we get down to the depth of what those statements mean. Now, during our study of the commandments, uh, this commandment, I, I'd like to develop four major points. Over the next four weeks, we're going to develop four major points, so you won't get it all today. And these concern the theology of theft. And the first one that I want to give you, I think, is a great point. One that uh, seems so obvious, and yet I hadn't thought of it in this way, but I'll give it to you today. Uh, the first reason that we have this sin that is called theft is because of the law of property. Number one is the law of property. What is theft? Well, the easy definition for us would be it means to take something that belongs to someone else. In other words, you take someone or something that is someone's property, something that rightfully belongs to him. So this is a law that's given to protect property. That helps you to understand why the penalty for breaking this one is less than commandment number six. In commandment number six, you're talking about a person's life. You take his life, then your life should be taken. Here it's talking about his property. That's not as serious as taking someone's life. Now the first thing that we should note here is the right to own property. Property is a natural right. Everywhere you go, everything that you see, somebody owns it. You can't walk on one square inch of this earth that somebody doesn't own, whether it's individuals, whether it's nations that own it, or internationally, it's owned. Somebody owns it all. If you see a no trespassing sign, that sign is there because somebody owns it. They have the right to it. Sometimes when I'm driving in the wide open expanses of Nevada or Utah, I look out across those distant hills and I think, well, what would it be like just to be able to take off driving and go across there and see what's on the other side that you can't see from here? But I know that if I do that, I'm trespassing on somebody's land. Even if I don't see any homes, if there are no barns or animals or no signs of life, that land belongs to someone. This afternoon, this entire place will empty out, sometimes a Bible will be left in a pew. And most of you, I hope, would never think of picking up that Bible 
and taking it home with you because you respect that that Bible belongs to somebody. That's somebody's property. And yet, I know many church members that as soon as they find out that they've left their Bible in the service, they'll hurry back as quickly as they can to get it because they're afraid somebody is going to steal their Bible. If you go into the church kitchen, you'll notice that many of the cabinets have locks on them. Why? Well, because... Somebody might steal the stuff. Now, we might use different terms for it. We may say, well, we're going to repurpose it. When Letha goes into the kitchen and she finds things missing, she doesn't ask, who repurposed the cups and the napkins? No, she wants to know who stole them. Now, let, let, me, let, let me let the Sunday school teachers, pioneer club workers on a little bit of secret about my wife. You go into her office and you take the stapler off her desk you decide that you're going to repurpose her scissors um, or anything else on her desk. When she comes back, I promise you, she will tape your mouth shut. She'll staple you to the wall for stealing her stuff. Let's suppose that you lived 300 years ago in the colonial days of this country and you came over from Europe to visit America. When the colonists came to Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, they came and they claimed a certain portion of the land. They were the first, and so they claimed the ownership by right of their discovery. And so as others came over to this country, they would pass over the claim territory because they respected the right of that claim. And so they went and they found new territory and staked their claims. Now, for our purposes today, I'm not going to argue over the rights of Indians that were here first. Uh, clearly, the Europeans didn't respect their rights to the land. They respected only their governments and what they had established as property rights. But when those stakes were put down, people honored the claims that were made. Now, I want to show you that there is a principle of theology that's behind that. William Nichol, from the 19th century, explains, In a new country, the first comers entered upon unoccupied ground, and each while making his own claim, recognize the claims of others. The relations of property are expressed by the possessive pronouns, and it's remarked that these are found in all languages. On what, then, is this right of property grounded? Not on social compact, not on the law of the land, not on the principle of utility, but on the will of God revealed in the constitution of our own nature and in the teaching of his word. And I find that particular part to be a fascinating uh, issue here in this theology that property ownership is a divine right. That is a natural right that's been put into man from the very beginning. It's put into the constitution of our life, which shows us that theft is a violation of man's nature that's been implanted in him by God. You recall how we've studied that the commandments are written on man's heart before they were written on the tables of stone. So these are things that we know. These are things that are in us. Theft is a violation of the basic human nature. And because we have a nature that is corrupt, we violate that innate law. And we find myriads of ways that we violate this law. We steal, even though it angers us when someone steals from us. Do you think that a man in prison, because of theft, is not hugely territorial? In prison, does he want anyone to steal his stuff? 
No, he may, he may be there for taking someone other someone else's stuff, but he doesn't want anybody to take his because this is law that's innate. I also find this very interesting, that governments are formed based upon the ownership of property. Now, in the Old Testament, when God founded Israel as a people, they were identified with land, with the ownership of land. We see this in the call of Abraham. This is the first thing that God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So God said, I'm going to take you to a land. And the ownership of that land was paramount throughout all of the Old Testament. And even still today, who owns the land in Israel is a fight to the death. That's because God gave them the land. It was divided among the people, and each person had his right to own land. Each person also had his own cache of stuff. He may not have had very much, maybe a donkey or an ox. Maybe he was a little wealthier and he had a camel or lived in a house. He may have had a cart, a mud hut, a stone house, a tent. Where did he get that right? The right came from God. And to violate that right of ownership is to violate God. Now as we think of that, and we think of government and how that land is the innate owner or owning things, that's, the, that's innate in man. We think of the, the, the government of communism. Communism is ungodly government. Now, you might think that sharing alike and nobody owning anything would be a better system than, and that would promote our better welfare. But why is it that in every place where communism has been tried, there's disaster? People are enslaved. They live in poverty. Just a few months ago, Fidel Castro died. And do you remember how short-sighted that people were, or rather, how short their memories were about who Fidel Castro was? I mean, here's a man that they were talking about what great things that he did for Cuba. Look at Cuba. Look at where any place that communism has touched. Look at North Korea. Look at, look at China. People live in misery. And this ought to be a huge lesson for social democrats who want to redistribute or redistribute wealth, that that is sin against God. Redistribution of wealth is Marxism. And that's incompatible with Christianity on many fronts. Uh, Secondly, redistribution of wealth destroys personal accountability. Think about this for just a moment. In every place in the Bible where it speaks concerning wealth, it tells us to serve the Lord out of the resources that God has given us personally. How is it possible for you to do what the Bible says, that you can sacrifice for others from things that you don't own? And the parable of the talents... Each person was given a certain amount of goods to be improved upon and then used in the service of the master. How is that possible to do if you own nothing? What if everything that you have has been taken from someone else? How are you going to obey God in that command? Thirdly, redistribution of wealth robs the heart of industry. A man will work for what he gets. He works for ownership. Why is property important? Because it spurs the person to work for it It helps him to obey God's commands, such as if a man doesn't work, then he shouldn't eat. You take away a man's right to own, 
to own what he works for, then you're going to ruin his moral fiber. God prohibits theft because ownership of property is man's God-given right. There, there's a reason that this country is capitalistic. Our founding fathers understood a governmental principle that is based upon the Word of God. This is what's found in Christianity. Don't let anybody ever tell you that capitalism is wrong because this is the system that is taught by God for the material ownership of goods, of God's people and everybody else. Now what I'm trying to tell you is that theft has serious implications for the way that we live that theft is an assault upon society, that it attacks people, and it is an attack on God. We are to love our neighbor, not to steal from him. Scripture says, if you don't love God, how can you love your fellow man? The way that you treat him is a demonstration of your love for God. So it's no mystery that communistic countries are atheistic. Communal property and redistribution of wealth are anti-God. Now, first then, in the theology of theft is the law of property. Let me give you the second one today. Secondly, is the law of provision. What is the source of theft? Well, Jesus said that sin comes from the heart. This sin comes from the heart. And if you want to drill down on this in the extended teachings of Scripture, it comes from a heart of discontent. Theft happens because of dissatisfaction. Theft happens when people are dissatisfied with God's provision. Theft is an attack on God as our provider because we think that God is not sufficiently provided for us. Now, the scriptures have quite a bit to say about contentment. The scriptures speak of being satisfied with God gives and that God knows exactly what you need. Theft happens essentially because of unbelief. Do you believe that God will provide for what you need? Theft claims that God is not a good provider. Theft is doubt, and doubt is sin. Now, as I'm speaking about this today, I don't want you to get in your mind that I'm, just not, I'm not just talking about her going down to the bank and taking a gun and robbing someone at the, the teller at the bank. No, we're going, we're going to include all the different ways that people steal. And that can go all the way from cheating on your taxes to whatever, whatever thing that it is. As long as it's dishonest, it's against God. And that is against God's provision, God as a provider. So doubt, that's one of, one of Israel's biggest problems. This command is a, a warning about being consumed with doubt. The psalmist remembered Israel's doubt in Psalm 78. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And then Jesus addressed the same problem in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, as we're studying the commandments, we keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount because there is where Jesus expounded the laws of his kingdom. And that's what we're talking about here, the laws of his kingdom. And let's see what Jesus has to say about God's provision. I think you're familiar with these scriptures. Matthew 6, verse 26. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now do you see the problem that Jesus speaks of? Doubts and fears arise because of unbelief. This is part of not trusting that God will provide for us. And so we get worried, we get anxious about things, we can't see ahead. And so we seek other ways to supplement what God gives. Either it's the greed to have more, the fear that we're not going to have enough. And if God doesn't give it, there's only one way that we can get it. And that's take it from someone who has what we want. Now I want to expand on this thought just a little bit later, and I'll only just mention it here. Campbell Morgan wrote that there are only three ways that we can obtain property. We get it by work, we get it by gift, or we get it by theft. Two of those ways are good ways, the first two. We get it by work, we get it by gift. The third way of obtaining property is always wrong. And so no matter what you think the justification for it, it is always wrong to steal. Later we'll see that even when a thief steals for food, it's wrong. Now, his motivation for stealing might mitigate our treatment of him somewhat, but it doesn't change the fact that he has broken God's law. It's breaking God's commandment. Now, I'd like to take the rest of our time today uh, to talk about this issue of provision, and I'd like to give you some biblical examples of lack of trust in God. And there is a larger theology of theft that's here. Uh, It's found in many of the principles of God's Word, And what we learn is that a Christian must trust God wholeheartedly, that we must believe God implicitly for all of his provisions. And if we ever decide that we're going to take provision out of God's hands, then that's to assume or to assume that responsibility upon ourselves. And that's like saying, if I was God, I'd do a much better job of this. I would take care of me in a much better way than what God does. I know more then God knows what I need. Now, I like to use Bible illustrations. Uh, I, I like to stay in the Bible if I can. I don't, so I don't have to go outside because I know that if I give you something that's in the Bible, it's going to be right. And nothing that we do is going to be better than reading Scripture. So we're going to stay right inside the Scriptures for just a little bit to talk about three different examples here of not trusting God. The first one starts with the first sin. You remember what the first sin was? Well, you might miss it because Adam did not commit the first sin. The Bible says that Eve was the first in transgression. She sinned first. But that's not the sin that God charged against the entire human race. Now, when Adam sinned, he was the one responsible for passing sin on to the rest of us. And there, of course, is a lot of theology that goes behind that too, and that has much to do with Christ being the seed of the woman rather than the seed of the man. But nevertheless, we read in the Word of God that it was Eve who was the first to sin. And the woman being first in the transgression affects a lot of our other theology. 
It affects why that we don't have women in leadership positions in the church. Paul explained that. Eve sinned first. She was the first in transgression. And when we talk about Eve and her sin, that's just the tip of a theological iceberg. And that's another subject we don't have time to deal with today. But for now, the first sin that was committed, and maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but the first sin that was committed was the sin of theft. What did Eve do? Well, she took something, didn't she? She took something that didn't belong to her. She took forbidden fruit that God said, you shall not touch. God had given Adam and Eve everything that they needed. They had every tree in the garden to eat but one. There's only one tree that was forbidden, and that forbidden tree in no way diminished God's provision for them. But Eve didn't believe that. She took from the tree, she stole from God, and so interestingly, the first sin that committed was the sin of theft and not trusting God's provision. She wanted more, and so did Adam. And so Satan convinced them that what God did, God held something back that would help them. And here is the striking point. That is sin against God's provision. Had God actually withheld anything good from them? Did they have enough? Did their disobedience against God grant them anything that would help them? No. Nothing helpful came from it. Oh, you would think, well, the more that you know, the better off you'll be. That's what Satan said to Eve. Uh, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil, you eat from this tree. And they said, well, that, that's got to be a good thing, isn't it? No, here's a case where knowing something did not help them at all. Last, uh, last Sunday, the last Sunday night that I was here, we had the deacon ordination. Uh, I said during that sermon that there are some things, you'd be glad that you don't know what goes on in the deacon's meetings Things that you don't know, a lot of times, won't hurt you. Things that you do know can be very painful for you. And here's a case where it was very painful. This did not help them at all. This is a sin that pulled the whole human race down. And theirs was the sin of doubt. So Satan planted that seed of doubt. God doesn't really know what's best. Doubt led to rebellion, and rebellion cast down the race. Doubt is a sin that puts us above God. And wasn't that Satan's original sin? He said, I want to be above God. And so he planted that same seed in Eve and watched it grow. Now, if you think, from what I said at the beginning of the message, that this sin is not serious sin, then I want you to think about the consequence of what happened when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, when they took it, when they took what God said don't take. Because of that, Sin, because that particular sin, physical death and spiritual death, passed upon the entire human race. So if I were to ask you, is theft as serious as murder or adultery? There's your answer. Theft, doubt, rebellion, all of those are heinous crimes against the providence of God. Now in Exodus chapter 20, God gave Israel the law. This law is the basis of their government. And when they left Egypt, they didn't know that God was going to lead them by Mount Sinai. They didn't know that they were going to spend an extended period of time looking up at this mountain that quaked with the majesty of God, with God's presence. And what was on their mind as they stood there below the mountain? They were waiting to get to Canaan. They said, we're going to a land that God has promised us. We're, going, we're free. We're free at last. And the idea when they left Egypt was, we're getting out of here. We're getting our own land. And God stopped them at Mount Sinai to help them. Without this, they would have arrived in Canaan as lawless 
people. And this is the law that would secure their blessings in the land. So the first sin on the books when God created man was theft. Man stole from God. And would it surprise you that the very first sin that was recorded in the promised land was also the sin of theft? Let's turn to Joshua chapter 6. As you go there, let me give you the setup for it. Israel crossed the Jordan River. The priests were in front carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They stepped into the waters of the Jordan River, and when they stepped into those waters, they parted. The entire army, the children of Israel, passed over on dry ground as they followed the priests, and they followed those priests as they marched around Jericho once every day for six days, and then on the seventh day, God said, the walls of the city will fall down. Now, if you look in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, here is a command that God said that they should observe. Verse number 17. And the city shall be accursed, even it, and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God told them that everything in the city belonged to him. Everything, every spoil, all that is there is reserved for the Lord's treasury. And God did what he promised. They marched around the city, the walls fell down. They spoiled the Amorites. They took everything that they had, and nobody touched anything. Or did they? Well, in the next chapter, Israel came to the next town in this quest of Canaan. This time, the town is Ai, a very small city in comparison to Jericho. It was more like a wide spot in the road, a one-traffic-light town. Shouldn't have been a problem for the, this army that had just defeated the heavily fortified city of Jericho. So Joshua said, we don't all need to go up there. Let's just send a few up and we'll just take care of business. And so they went. But Ai didn't fall. Instead, 36 men were killed at Jericho. As far as we know, there was no one killed in that conquest of the city. The Bible doesn't record anybody was killed. But here they come to Ai, and Ai is too formidable for them because God was not with them. And so Joshua was distraught. He fell before his face, or on his face before God, and he blamed God for this defeat. But it wasn't God who was to be blamed. Just as Eve had taken something that belonged to God, and that led to disaster, so someone in Israel had taken from God. In the seventh chapter, verse number 10, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen, and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. So there was a thief. Oh, I am sure there were thieves when they came out of Egypt. But that whole generation had died, remember? They all died. But when people are born, what do you raise? More sinners. More thieves. And so here was a thief. This time it's thievery directly against God, and 36 people died because of it. So Joshua began to search out this thief, tribe by tribe, family by family. He examined them until he narrowed it down to one family and one man, and it was Achan who stole. 
Look at verses 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. It was Achan. He stole from God. The spoils were God's, and Achan took what did not belong to him. Now, you know the rest of the story. Because of this sin, Achan and his family were taken, and all of them were stoned. All of them were burned in the fire, and the entire family was destroyed. What's Achan's sin? He's a thief. But is there more involved in it? Well, yes, there was. Achan didn't trust God's provision. Let me tell you a little bit about the underlying theology of this story. There's a big, bigger principle at work here. God said, everything in Jericho is mine. And what God wanted was the spoils of the first city that was conquered. Jericho was the first fruits of the victory in Canaan. So the principle is that God is first. That's in the law. In other, in other laws of worship given on Sinai, God said the first fruit of everything belongs to him, and he wants those back. God wants back the first fruits. It, and when we give God back the first fruits, it says that we trust God for fruit to follow. God, giving to God first, proves that we trust him to provide for us. We give up what we can see to obtain what we cannot see. That's the definition of faith, isn't it? We give up what we can see to obtain what we cannot see. So the law of the first fruits was incorporated into the harvest. And the first fruits were those that came in the early harvest. And the people trusted God that more would come after that. If we give God the first fruits, then God will be faithful to give us, give us back, give back to us even more. So now we return to Achan. He stepped in front of God to intercept the first fruits. He didn't believe that God would provide. And so what he did was what he thought was best for old Achan. And the interesting point of this is if he had just waited, then he would have been saved alive and he would find out that God was not going to ask again to keep the spoils. Go down to chapter 8, verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee and arise and go up to Ai See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoils thereof, and the cattle thereof, ye shall take for a prey unto yourselves. So do you see that? Everything that they conquered in Ai was theirs. This is because they gave God the first fruits. And then God said, you can keep the spoils of everything that's conquered afterwards. You can keep the spoils of Ai. And it's the same for every city after that. The next town and the next. The spoils that they received by waiting was bigger than what God took at Jericho. So what did Israel get? Cities, houses, vineyards, olive trees, riches. All of that was theirs because they obeyed in giving to God first. At Ai, Achan was concerned only about the good of Achan. But who's God concerned with? He's concerned with all of his people. He's concerned that all of us receive good at his hand. And so he blessed Israel when they gave the first fruits. 
And in the rest of the conquest of Canaan, it's the same. They received so much because they obeyed God. Now, there's a lesson, of course. Don't steal from God. Obey God. Trust Him. You're always going to do better than you can do on your own. Your ways are always a way of death and disaster, but God's ways are always the ways of abundant life. Well, let me give you just one more example quickly, and we'll close this part of the message. Let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Many of you probably know where we're going. This is another theft. This time, theft is the first sin in the church. So theft was the first sin for the race. Theft was the first sin for the people of God as they went into Israel. And now here in the New Testament, we find that theft is the first sin for the church. And this is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Now the first sin in the church was theft... So don't leave your Bible in the pew when you leave today. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things." Is this a point that really needs to be pressed further? They said they gave to God, but they lied. They stole from the promise, and they kept the money for themselves. So here's what they thought. If we give it all to God, who's going to take care of us? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Same old story you find in the Old Testament with Israel. And so this is your lesson, folks. Theft has its own theology. It's not just taking something from someone else. It's to take from God. It's to steal faith from God. This is doubt. Doubt is sin. You take away faith in God. And what does the Bible say about faith? It says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So you don't want to try this. Don't ever try this. This slams God's character as the provider. He promised that he will provide and provide he will. Do you believe that? I know it's probably a little bit late for most of you to fill out those tax returns. Are you going to do better if you steal? Probably not. No, I know you won't. Hebrews 13.5 Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said... I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Maybe some of you haven't learned this lesson. We're going to find out a little bit more about that when we count 
today's collection on Wednesday evening. The Bible says he'll never leave you or forsake you. You can take that promise to the bank. Did you know that? That's a promise that you can take to the bank. He will never leave you or forsake you. So don't worry about what you've got to get on your own. God will take care of you. You don't have to steal from anybody. You don't have to be dishonest in any of your dealings with anybody. Because God is always going to take care of his people. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the word that we've looked at today. We thank you for your provision. Lord, your, your word is always best for us. Uh, obedience to your word always brings the greatest blessings upon us. There's only death and destruction by disobeying you. Lord, above all people in the world, certainly Christians ought to be the ones considered to be honest and forthright, always telling the truth, always correct with our money, never cheating anybody out of anything. And as we'll learn um, in just a short time, this will include even things like money that we borrow from others, whether we pay our bills on time, certainly something for everybody to think about. Do we honor God by not stealing from others what does not belong to us? Help us, Lord, to serve you and honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.